The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. We're back. Happy New Year. I'm Leslie Marshall. Glad to be with you on this second day of our new show in our new time slot. And it's actually not a new, new time slot. I mean, you've heard others sitting in for me, but we will be with you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on the only True Democracy in Talk Radio. As promised, some great guests, and we have two of those joining us in this hour. You can always join us. Keep in mind, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Two great guests joining us, the first of which has been on the program before. He's somebody I've learned a lot from. I know you have as well. So we decided to bring him back in the beginning of this year, especially in light of the uh, change of regime uh, that we are seeing in the Oval Office. Max Rickman is president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, the NCPSSM. They're one of the nation's most influential senior advocacy and education membership organizations. Max is also former staff director of the Special Senate Committee on Aging or Senate Special Committee on Aging, and he was a 16-year veteran of Capitol Hill. More than a pleasure to have back on the program, Mr. Max Rickman. Max, good afternoon. Thank you for rejoining us, and welcome back. Happy New Year. Good to have you with us, sir. Well, Happy New Year to you, Leslie, and and thank you again for inviting me uh, to uh, be on your program. Always a pleasure to have you with us. You're an expert with regard to Social Security and Medicare. I've learned so much from you over the years um, on these two organizations and how much they do provide and why it's essential to keep them and how many lies and myths about Social Security and Medicare we hear um, out there. Uh, not just in the media, but certainly uh, among those on the right side of the aisle, which our president-elect claims uh, to be and will be at the helm of with a Republican majority in the House and the Senate. Um, First of all, there are a lot of seniors who, with the election of Donald Trump, Max, as you know, are frightened for their future for many reasons, but one of which is will they have their Social Security and Medicare benefits. Max, my mother is a senior citizen, and she voted for Hillary Clinton And she voted against Donald Trump, if you will, because they, as a senior herself, she is very reliant and dependent on Social Security and Medicare. And as you know, you many people need more than just Social Security and Medicare. And like so many seniors in America today, um, she's very frightened of what the future will bring under a Donald Trump presidency with Republicans majority in the House and the Senate who constantly want to either defund or just take a hatchet to and do away with Social Security and Medicare. Can you speak to those listening, Max, um, about, uh, one, why there's so much fear um, among the seniors in our nation and if that fear is founded, and two, um, what Social Security and Medicare truly provide for these people? Because I, I think, you know, a lot of people who aren't familiar with Social Security and Medicare or just think of it as something that, you know, they may or may not get when they're old, don't really understand how much a part of the daily lives of our seniors, which are a huge segment of our population, how much they rely on these programs. Well, your, your mother is not alone. There are millions and millions of seniors around the country who are, uh, I suppose, holding their breaths uh, uh, trying to f- uh, determine how this is uh, this new administration and this new Congress is going to uh, act on Social Security and Medicare. Uh, many, many seniors, majority of seniors, depend on Social Security for either all of their income or the majority of their income. 
And, and I have to say, I watched the uh, presidential uh, primaries, the Republican primaries, uh, pretty carefully and uh, listened to, I think, all the debates. And throughout that period, uh, President-elect Trump was the only one who said time and again and pledged, I'm not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. So he's going to take office and be sworn in in a couple of weeks, and he's going to, going to have a majority in the Congress. That majority is, uh, is committed to reducing Social Security, privatizing it, turning Medicare uh, into a voucher program. Again, we call it coupon care. You'll, instead of Medicare, uh, traditional Medicare, you'll get a coupon and you'll be told to go out and buy insurance and, and good luck. And I'm not even sure about the good luck part. But the reason we have the Medicare program is insurance companies did not want to insure seniors at a reasonable cost because they couldn't make money on it. So the Medicare program was created for that very reason. So, uh, you know, I have been watching the, some of the statements coming out of this Congress, some of the people that um, have been uh, nominated to positions of great influence on these programs. And I have to say uh, that uh, these will be perilous times uh, for Social Security, and Medicare. We're going to have to redouble, quadruple our efforts to make sure that these programs uh, are protected and preserved. In fact, uh, before the election, we had a legislative agenda where we were hoping to expand these programs, uh, add benefits to Medicare, uh, improve the Social Security program, especially the minimum benefit. Now we're going to be lucky just to hold on to these programs. I want to talk to the point that you started off with, which is when you talk about coupon care and how Republicans want to privatize. Max, we know that politicians have lobbyists and corporations they answer to on both sides of the aisle. Why is it beneficial in Republicans' eyes, or who does it benefit? Because it obviously does not benefit the recipients, the seniors in this country, the taxpayers, the voters um, who are reliant on Social Security and Medicare. So What's in it for the Republicans or whoever is pulling their strings uh, as well, I puppets think to the corporations? Well, I friends in the, in the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry, the Wall Street folks. Uh, they would love to have more control over these programs. And I suppose, you know, I, I, I hate to attribute motives to anybody, uh, but uh, you're right. Uh, it's pretty transparent who, would, who will benefit and uh, who will lose uh, if these programs are turned on to uh, uh, private uh, entities, whether it's Wall Street, pharmaceutical companies, and, and the insurance companies. And I think it's also just a philosophy of, uh, uh, on the Republican side for years now that the less government, the better. And uh, I, I think a lot of seniors... And I've looked at some of the uh, results of the exit polling. A lot of seniors uh, voted for uh, President-elect Trump, and I think they're going to be very, very surprised at uh, what's going to come out of the administration and out of the Republican Congress. You know, there have been, I think, 55, 60 efforts uh, to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that passed the House of Representatives. Uh, never made it through the Senate. There was one piece of budget legislation that uh, uh, went beyond that, and the president rejected it. Now they're going to have a, a Republican in in the White House. 
So um, these programs, I think, are in, in, uh, in real jeopardy uh, in, in the next um, uh, few weeks even, and certainly in the next few months and, and in the next few years. To take an example, as I mentioned, the Affordable Care Act, I don't think many Medicare beneficiaries realize that uh, the pledge that uh, uh, President-elect Trump made to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act is going to seriously harm uh, the health care, provision of health care to Medicare beneficiaries. The Affordable Care Act, despite all the rhetoric we heard in 2012, 14, and 16 about what it did to the Medicare program negatively, the Affordable Care Act added benefits to Medicare. For the first time, the Medicare program under the Affordable Care Act provides uh, preventative treatments such as colonoscopies, mammograms, diabetes screening, with no out-of-pocket cost for beneficiaries, uh, an annual wellness visit with no out-of-pocket cost for beneficiaries. That's all going to disappear with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act added 12 years of solvency um, to the Medicare program. That's going to disappear. The closing of that infamous donut hole where Medicare beneficiaries who opted to um, uh, enroll in Part D, the prescription drug piece of Medicare, that was going to close completely in another two years. That is, would be that would be repealed. But seniors under this administration, if the Affordable Care Act uh, is repealed, it looks like that's the direction this Congress is going and this in this White House. They're going to pay more for their health care, and they're going to get less for it. I don't think that realization has dawned on on a very many beneficiaries at this point. And I, I wanted, you made a very important point about Social Security and how it impacts so many people, not just those tens of millions who receive Social Security benefits, but families. You know, Social Security, it needs to be understood that it's insurance for families. You know, we all know the term FICA. FICA stands for Federal, I know you know this, uh, Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Social Security funds insurance for families. A third of beneficiaries go to non-retired workers, spouses, survivors. Millions of children get by because of Social Security being there for them. And, you know, as an example, I often use this. uh, A 27-year-old worker with a spouse and two children has right now, never mind what happens when they retire, has right now about half a million dollars in combined life and disability insurance in the event that something bad happens uh, to the primary worker in the family through disability or or early death. All of this is at stake, and all of this is going to be played out. Uh, I think what we intend to do is uh, do our best to hold uh, Mr. Trump to his promise to not touch, those are the words he used, not touch Social Security and Medicare, and rally our our troops, our membership, uh, in uh, in coordination with many other senior groups, uh, to try to make the point to the Congress that uh, if you care about your reelection, you got you have to start paying attention to what your constituents uh, need. Absolutely. Max, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about this. We're also going to talk about what a growing segment of the population this is and how lifespans, well, they're becoming longer, so these are benefits people need more, not less, and maybe touch upon that uh, voucher or coupon, uh, as Max refers it to it. We'll be back with our guests. Back with you right after this. Don't go away. 
Russell. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk Radio. And we're back with Max Rickman. He's president and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Uh, please, uh, the website for the NCPSSM is ncpssm.org and follow them on Twitter at ncpssm. Max, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, talking you. Talking about Social Security and Medicare and talking about Republicans wanting to get rid of it, privatize it, voucher it, or couponize it, as you had talked about, um, is even a bigger issue because the with the baby boomers, seniors are a growing segment of our population. And because of technology and healthcare prevention and, you know, different lifestyle cho- choices, people are living longer. So these programs are more needed now, not less. I, I would imagine you would agree. Let, let's talk to that growing segment of the population and living longer. Well, you know, that's why it's so ironic, uh, given what you, uh, the facts that you just uh, stated. It's so ironic that uh, those in the leadership in the Congress uh, want to uh, uh, raise the age for eligibility uh, want to raise the age for eligibility of both programs, Social Security and Medicare, uh, want to reduce the benefits. People are going to need these benefits, as you point out, uh, even longer than in the past because they are living longer. If anything, we should be focused on how can we improve these programs. You know, Medicare, a terrific program. I think everybody, virtually everybody who's on Medicare, they may complain here and there about something but they do not want their Medicare messed with. And uh, they certainly understand as good a program as Medicare is, it doesn't cover vision, it doesn't cover hearing, it doesn't cover dental. All that is out of pocket. We need to, what, what, we had an agenda before the election that was focused on expanding uh, the Medicare program in these ways. And we will keep that agenda while we're trying to save the pro- essentials of the, of the very program that exists now. Uh, same with Social Security. You know, we what we were hoping for, and I think that it will come to pass at some point, is to improve the minimum benefit, to have a more accurate and fair cost of living adjustment. Uh, you know, there's, there was no cost of living adjustment. I bet your mom knows there was no COLA in 2016, and she probably knows there was no COLA in th- 2010 and 2011. The cost of living adjustment is supposed to ensure that your benefit keeps up with inflation. Uh, the legislation that was introduced in the, la- at the, the waning days of the last Congress by Congressman Sam Johnson, who's the chairman and will continue to be the chairman of the Social Security Subcommittee of Ways and Means, just goes the opposite direction, reduces the COLA, uh, reduces uh, benefits uh, over time changes the formula for receiving benefits so that the benefits will be lower. And uh, the, the COLA issue is going to come back again and again because that's so important to seniors. They're losing ground uh, every year because the COLA is inadequate or is non-existent uh, as it was in 2016. And we shouldn't be looking at ways to, uh, to uh, reduce the COLA in the, uh, in the name of, quote, reform. Uh, even further, but I, I'm afraid that that's the way this Congress is going to start out. That's the direction they're going to take. We're going to oppose that every step of the way. Uh, Max, I want I want to ask a last question uh, before the uh, end of the segment here. I I want to ask because they're very different programs. What do you do? How do you privatize Social Security? Social Security's program people paid into, 
And now that they're retired, uh, they, they get to have a piece of, and look, my mother worked for years and her social security check alone does not cut it. I mean, it, you live in before the poverty, below the poverty level. Uh, just a minute. Go ahead, Max. Well, the, the, the idea of privatizing Social Security is, is pretty simple. Uh, instead of paying into uh, the, uh, Social Security through the payroll tax, the FICA tax, uh, that money would be invested in, in private accounts. Now, you know, there, in the last uh, year or so, maybe that would have been good because uh, the, the stock market uh, rose dramatically. But the point of Social Security is it, it's supposed to be there no matter what happens yes. in, in the market. And, you know, in 2008, uh, we have a 401K plan for our association. I started referring to my 401K as a 201K. <laughs> well, I Max, we, half the value. Max we're going to have you on again in 2017. We thank you so much for being with us. Max Rickman, President and CEO of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Check it out. If not for yourself, your parents or your grandparents, go to the website, find out more, find out what you can do. Uh, these are not benefit. These are not handouts. The benefits people paid into and deserve. NCPSSM.org. Follow them at NCPSSM. Leslie Marshall, welcome, welcome back. Day two of our new time, 3 p.m. Eastern. Although not new time, our show always started at 3 p.m., but I'm doing the live guest and open phone segments in this hour. Glad to have you with us. 3 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. Happy New Year. Happy 2017. And I'm happy to have this guy back. You know, this guest has uh, become uh, really uh, invaluable to us on the program regarding his expertise, explaining things, and doing so without a political slant. Um, I love it, and I learn a lot, and I know all of you do. And also, he's become off the air uh, a great personal friend and advisor to me uh, personally with career whatever, and I can't thank him enough. Colonel Cedric Layton joins us. Colonel Layton is founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. They're a strategic risk and leadership uh, consultancy organization. They serve global companies and organizations, and he founded it back in 2010. But prior to that, he was in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. He attained the rank of colonel. He is also a military analyst for CNN. More than a pleasure to have Colonel Cedric Layton joining us. Colonel Layton, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Leslie. It's great to be with you again. And it's good to have you uh, with us. You know, Colonel, I uh, remember a time uh, learning in history about a couple called the Rosenbergs who were executed for spying on the United States for Russia. Now, hacking is different than spying, but it's kind of like spying in a different way, a roundabout way, one might say. And we have a, we, you know, there is evidence, obviously, that the Russian government, not just somebody in Russia, hacked into the American system and interfered in our elections, our presidential elections, and yet there are people angry that the White House has announced retaliation against Russia, uh, including sanctions and ejecting diplomats. Um, throughout your uh, career and looking at this way it is now, are, are you kind of surprised that our president-elect Trump isn't uh, instead of praising Putin, uh, taking a harder stance against Russia, because Russia, I don't think, is the friend they pretend to be. Well, Leslie, I think you're right. And, you know, you mentioned the Rosenberg case. And, uh, you know, hacking is very much like spying. It's, in fact, the more efficient way to spy. It's a new way of, of doing it, but it's 
so much more effective than you know, spending the time recruiting agents, uh, doing the kinds of things that uh, you know you saw in the James Bond movies or in you know read in John Le Carre books. Uh, you know things like that that uh, a lot of time and effort can now be done uh, with you know a little bit of malware and uh, a uh, basically a flick of the switch. And uh, this is what we saw. It's uh, a, there's a very high degree of certainty that the Russians did this, and the reason there's such a high degree of certainty is because, just like with a criminal case, there is a lot of forensic evidence when it comes to hacking, and the forensic evidence uh, does, in the case of the DNC hack and uh, the other hacks associated with the election, uh, they all point uh, to one place, and that one place is Russia. Uh, no, Yeah, no question of, uh, about that. Um, some would say that President Obama should have done this prior. Um, from a military perspective, do you think that he should have? And do you think perhaps the response would have been different because, uh, you know, before the election, Vladimir Putin wouldn't be assured that President-elect Trump would be president? And a lot of people also refer to Trump, many Democrats, as you know, as uh, Putin's puppet. Right. And, you know, it's it's very, uh, you know, certainly very unfortunate that uh, any president-elect is being uh, tarred with that brush of being a foreign leader, and especially a foreign leader like Russia's uh, leader being that person's puppet. So uh, I think that for President Obama, it was a very difficult choice. What you had to do, to deal with there was a situation uh, he where he clearly knew, President Obama clearly knew that uh, the hacking was going on, and it wasn't long after the report of the incidents that they were very certain within government circles that Russia was behind these hacks. Uh, If he exposed uh, the Russian actions early, uh, it would have minimized the damage, possibly could have changed the outcome of the election, uh, just from the, you know, the the sheer uh, political discourse that uh, floated around this issue. And uh, then you know, there would have been that question, did he interfere with the election as well? So he had a very difficult choice to make from a purely operational standpoint. Uh, it probably would have been good to reveal it a bit earlier uh, than, uh, than he did. Uh, but uh, like I said, it was a very difficult choice for him to make, and uh, both politically speaking and from uh, the vantage point of uh, protecting the resources of the country, uh, it became very important for the president to be absolutely certain uh, that uh, the hacks were coming from Russia and that they were exactly what they were thought to be. No, I agree with you there. My defense when I'm on Fox, you know, would be that, you know, you you can't just have sanctions and eject diplomats if you're not 100 percent sure. And you can't just have one 100 percent sure example or source. Um, Speaking of the sanctions, uh, some are saying this is no big deal. This is something that Donald Trump can undo easily when he gets into office. Is that accurate? Well, those 35 diplomats, uh, so-called diplomats, I guess, that, the, that were expelled by President Obama, they're probably not coming back. And if they did come back, it would be a big mistake because those people, uh, you know, from what I can tell, were certainly members of the Russian intelligence services. Uh, so while they may not have been specifically involved in the hacking, they're clearly involved in intelligence operations against the United States while they, while they were based here. And, uh, you know, that part of it can't be undone directly. Um, any economic sanctions, uh, you know, anything like that, it, that becomes a bit more uh, difficult to weigh. And it's certainly true that the Russian 
intelligence leadership does not, generally speaking, have assets in the United States, personal assets in the United States. So uh, it would be, you know, perhaps easier to undo economic sanctions of that type. Uh, but the types of uh, sanctions that have been levied, the types of measures that have been taken, uh, that becomes pretty hard for uh, Donald Trump to undo because once that train gets rolling, uh, there is really no way to recall uh, the actions that have been taking, taken. And, and that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing a, a situation where uh, the Russians have already removed those diplomats. Uh, they have uh, basically decided not to respond in kind, uh, basically reserving for themselves the right to do so in the future. So in essence, they're waiting to test Trump uh, to see what he's going to do. And then if they're not satisfied with uh, what Trump does in the first part of his uh, administration, the first period of his administration, uh, they may very well up the ante again and start hacking activities and other intelligence operations against the United States. Um, I, there's so much I want to talk about with uh, regard um, to this. Russia is an ally, some people say. It's a different time, uh, you know, since the Cold War and since they were the former USSR. Yet it's clear, not only with these people here and the hacking, that there are spies among us in the United States from Russia, and we certainly have spies uh, in Russia. Colonel, is it typical that we have spies in allied nations? Do we probably have spies in France, Germany, uh, the UK, and, and other countries? Some people don't raise an eyebrow as much to having spies in Russia. Um, but why is this if, if, if you're friends and if you trust your ally, so to speak? Right. So in in terms of spycraft and, uh, you know, the types of intelligence operations that uh, go on, in some cases, uh, there are, well, first of all, there are absolutely spies from the United States in all of the countries that you've mentioned. Many of them are openly declared. Uh, many of them are known to the host nation, and they are basically used as intelligence officers to facilitate the exchange of intelligence information. And uh, when they're openly declared to the host nation, then they're friends. You know, it's it's basically uh, you know colleagues from work that uh, you know they have uh, perhaps a a more classified outlook on life in terms of the types of information that they have access to. Uh, but they're they're there to share information. They're there to learn from each other. Uh, they're there to further the relationship. They are also diplomats in essence, diplomats uh, you know in the classified realm. Uh, so when it comes to allies, uh, yes, there are intelligence operatives in these nations. Uh, those nations also have intelligence officials in our country, and it's all recognized and all known. When it comes to Russia and other countries uh, that are uh, considered to be adversaries or potential adversaries, it gets a little bit more difficult because those people are not openly declared always, and they're out there not to facilitate the exchange of information in all cases, even though that can happen, um, but they're there to gather information against the country. And so that's when you have what's, what's called in the business a non-cooperative source. And in this case, the entire country is basically a non-cooperative source because it doesn't want to reveal its innermost secrets to, uh, let's say, the CIA station chief or somebody like that in Moscow. So that's that's the big difference. And, you know, when you look at how uh, Russia is trying to reassert itself on the world stage, it becomes very clear that the intelligence rivalries that we saw in the Cold War are coming back again right now. And uh, they're reasserting themselves in a very modern way. Uh, in part through the cyber hacking that uh, we're talking about. There are people out there that say that the United States has probably hacked into other nations' elections. Do you believe that, Colonel? 
Well, there are certainly, there have certainly in the past been influence operations that have gone on even before uh, the cyber age, as I like to call it, came upon us. So the Internet, uh, you know, is is basically something that we've seen the growth of since the 90s, uh, in definitely in a post-Cold War world. Uh, in instances, uh, you know, where you've had, let's say, elections in Central America, like the elections in El Salvador, for example, back in the 80s, um, there was clearly an effort on the part of the United States to influence people to vote in a pro-Western way. But it wasn't really hacking. It was more uh, things like funding advertising campaigns or making sure that uh, political parties that uh, we thought would be friendly to Washington uh, would be supported and would have a chance at the ballot box. So it's more an operation of that type that we've engaged in in the past. There have been other uh, cases where there have been much more, uh, let's say, direct action taken. You know, you look at Guatemala in the 1950s, 1956. Uh, you look at Iran. You look at you know some of those. Uh, operations and that uh, those kinds of operations had a much more direct impact. Uh, you know, many of them were, uh, in some cases, successful, or at least temporarily successful. Others were not. Uh, but then you also have to look at the bigger, you know, bigger areas such as influence operations that you know are not normally called that, but would uh, you know fall under the purview of the Marshall Plan, for example, after World War II. Uh, and uh, you know, when you look at um, what that was all about, it was basically a huge influence operation which was also designed to provide the basis of a livelihood, a sustainable livelihood for the people of the countries of Europe uh, that had suffered so much in World War II. And that was, you know, former foe as well as former former friend, former ally uh, that benefited from that. And that's, uh, you know, so influence operations can take many forms. Hacking in the sense that we saw with the Russians in this election, as to my knowledge, not occurred in the way that it did uh, here in the United States. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what did um, occur here in the United States and what could occur with hacking from Russia or either even other you know nations like China. Uh, we're going to be back with our guest and uh, you as well. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy New Year. Colonel Cedric Layton is in the house. He's been on the show before. You learn a lot from him. Follow him on Twitter at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N and the website CedricLayton.com. More in a moment. guest and with you happy new year i'm leslie marshall he is colonel cedric layton founder and president of cedric layton associates former u.s air force intelligence officer for 26 years and military analyst for cnn colonel thank you for holding uh welcome back we're talking about russia the retaliation the sanctions ejecting diplomats but we're also talking about the hacking my understanding uh from what i've read is that the russian hackers seem to be going after the united states electricity grid um, is that correct? Uh, what does that mean? I would imagine it's extremely worry, worrisome, but more so why? 
Right, Leslie, it is absolutely worrisome. And so what Russia has done is is actually a much broader operation than uh, just the, in quotation marks, the electricity grid or just the elections, even though both are absolutely critically important. What the Russians are doing is they're mounting a large influence campaign. Uh, They're using cyber uh, hacking technologies uh, to find out how our networks operate. Uh, They're trying to find out exactly who influences whom in the political realm, in the technical area or in the electricity area. What they're looking at is how the power grids are actually constructed. So uh, what happened in the case of the Vermont utility, you had a piece of malware uh, that was generated uh, in the same way that the malware that was used against the DNC was generated. Uh, So the signature was basically one that was similar to the the, uh, uh, one that was attributed to Russia. That was found on a laptop uh, that was associated with uh, the utility in Vermont. I did not, to the best of our knowledge, get into the actual uh, systems that control the flow of electricity, uh, but it could have wreaked havoc on the administrative uh, functions that uh, this utility uh, has to run in order to operate. Uh, So what the Russians are trying to do is they're trying to find out exactly how we operate. And when they do that, uh, they're mapping our grid. Uh, They're mapping not only the electrical grid, but they're mapping the way in which our computer networks operate, so that if they ever need to or feel the need to do so, uh, they know exactly what buttons to press, literally and figuratively, uh, to attempt to shut us down. Uh, Whether or not they would be successful in a crisis, um, that depends on a variety of things. It depends on how good they are, frankly, and how good our defenses are. Our defenses need some work, obviously. Uh, But uh, the Russians are right now in the intelligence gathering phase. Um, When they go operational, that would be a time when they feel the need to respond to things like sanctions uh, or other provocations, what they would view as provocations against their efforts to Uh, expand Russian influence around the world. Colonel, a number of questions here. I said the other night on Special Report with Brett Baer, it was on Friday night, that it's our elections today, it could be our nuclear codes tomorrow. And I got, you know, a lot of backlash from that. But, you know, this is a Pandora's box or the beginning of something that, that could be even more detrimental when we look at, like you said, what they were trying to do with the electricity grid um, and what they could do um, if, if, you know, if this is what they're looking at, um, so, so speak to me about that. And then I want to talk about, uh, Trump and, uh, some of his, uh, desires that he signaled for relations with Russia. Sure. So when it comes to the nuclear codes tomorrow, like you said on special report, uh, they, uh, you know, in, in that particular case, something like that could happen. It may not be specifically that, but the metaphor is absolutely apt. Uh, there, there are uh, some safeguards in there for the nuclear codes specifically uh, to prevent them from being compromised uh, uh, via a hack or via a standard hack at least. Uh, but the point is well taken because what it really means is the Russians are using these things, uh, whether it's the attack against the Democrats or the utility, as stepping stones uh, to further activities. Um, the Russian hackers have also been involved in the past in going after uh, the banking sector. And uh, what they're doing is somewhat similar to what the Chinese were doing in that they're gathering information. In the case of the Chinese, they went after the Office of Personnel Management. So if you think of that as, the, in essence, the big HR department for the federal government, Uh, 
uh, you can just imagine the way in which uh, data collected from something like OPM uh, would be very important for them in terms of influence operations, in terms of figuring out how uh, not only networks operate, but how people really operate, you know, who influences whom, who's got a clearance, who doesn't, you know, all of those things become really, really important. So when you go out there and you look at what exactly is, is happening, uh, we find ourselves uh, playing catch-up in the cybersecurity realm because uh, we did not design, we as a collective, did not design the Internet with security in mind, and now we're paying the price for that uh, because it becomes not necessarily easy, but it becomes possible uh, for actors like the Russian state uh, to get in there and figure out, uh, in essence, how we do business. I, I want to uh, talk about Donald Trump and what he has uh, signaled, and, and that is a desire for warmer relations with Russia. Uh, is this troubling uh, to you with all of your military experience, Colonel, and if so, why? So in my background, I actually spent uh, a period in Berlin. I was stationed in Berlin, Germany, uh, not only when the wall came down, but just before uh, during that period and right after. So I got to see the Cold War uh, up close and personal uh, during that period, and of course I'd seen some aspects of it beforehand. Uh, and when I look at overtures to enhance relations with Russia, on the one hand, you know, I welcome that because obviously peace is better than war. On the other hand, even though the ideology has changed and the governmental system has changed in Russia, and people have to remember uh, that certain countries have certain interests, and those interests often don't change no matter what form of government they have or uh, what kind of leader they have that's in charge of their country. And uh, the one thing that really concerns me about the way in which the president-elect is pursuing this opportunity with Russia is, or this perceived opportunity with Russia, is that he is doing so without regard to what seem to be Mr. Putin's designs for not only Europe, uh, but also the Middle East. Uh, Putin is basically looking at activities in right. Europe that he can influence and in the Middle East that he can influence, and it becomes very difficult uh, for us to establish common ground with him right. because we bump into Russia very, very quickly in these areas. Absolutely. Colonel, thank you for being with us um, at the uh, beginning of our uh, new time slot in the new year. Always a pleasure. Colonel Cedric Layton, follow him on Twitter at Cedric Layton, C E D R I C L E I G H T O N, the website. Cedric Layton.com.